Well, good morning again, church. Good to see you guys this morning. I don't know if you guys feel uh, the same way I feel about the summer. Is anybody here with me? It just feels like a bit of a blur. Just kind of what happened. It's uh, September, and I'm sure in the room here today, there's probably a mixture of emotions with what we are feeling, right? This is typically the time where we're, we're excited, but we're also anxious about all the things that are about to kick off here this coming week as things get back to the normal routine with school starting again. And so as I was thinking about this, I thought it would be appropriate before we jump into the message this morning to kick this year off on the right foot with prayer. You know, one of the things I love about this faith community is the strong belief in the practice and the power of prayer. It is so evident in this faith community. And so I want to actually dedicate this school year, this ministry year to God in prayer. And the way that I want to do this is I want to actually pray over three circles of influence that we have. I want to have us pray over our families. I want to have us pray over this church community, and then I want to have us pray over the larger community of Burlington. And so in order to do this, um, I've actually got on the slide here to show you. I'm going to have this section over here. I want you guys to pray for our families. Let's pray for our students as they go back to school, some for the first time, whether young or going off to post-secondary. So pray for our students, but I also want you to pray for our parents as they prepare to parent their kids and prepare themselves for all the changes that are coming this week with schedules. And so you guys are going to pray for our families. This center section, I would love for you to pray for our church community. Pray for our leaders, volunteers, our elders, and staff as we lead the ministries at this church. I also want you to pray that we would be a bright light here at Wellspring to the community around us. So if you guys could pray for our church. And then this section over here, I want you guys to pray for the community of Burlington. I'd love for you to pray for our teachers. I'd love for you to pray for our community leaders, our frontline workers, the people who serve the community of Burlington on a regular basis. And so I'm actually going to have, um, you have one minute to do this, and you can turn to one another. If you're by yourself, you can sit and pray where you are just for one minute, but we're going to have each section pray for one of those three categories and just dedicate this year to God. So can we do that? Let's turn to one another and just pray this year in as we start off in September. Let's do it. Father, I just thank you for the prayers that have already been offered here this morning. And as a community, we want to lift up our families to you. The kids and parents that are heading back into this fall season, God, would you just prepare them and protect them as they do that? God, we're just excited for all the things you're going to do in our families this year. God, we thank you for this church community. Would you continue to bless it? Would you continue to allow us to be a bright light to those around us? God, would you send us into the places and spaces that you want us to bring your gospel to this year? Would you allow our leaders to serve and to lead? 
through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives would be changed here at Wellspring this year. And God, we also pray for this community that you would give us more open doors, that you would allow us to be a beacon of light to the community around us, that Wellspring would make a difference to the lives of families all around this region. God, would you allow us to be kind of a lighthouse to these people? And God, we just pray over our community. We thank you for the teachers and community workers and staff and people that serve us, God, on so many levels. Would you bless them and just protect them and their families this new year as we head into the fall? And we just pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I would just encourage you to continue to lean in and pray over these things as we head into another ministry year together. Well, I'm sure some of you who are parents can relate to this. Um, As a parent, you know that moment when you're home and you hear a very large bang in your house, and it is kind of a noise that's often followed by silence. You kind of freeze what you're doing, and you stand and listen for one of two sounds— The first sound is crying, and typically by the volume and intensity of the cry, you kind of know how bad the situation is. Anybody with me on that, parents? Okay. So that's one of the two sounds that you can hear, and although no parent enjoys listening to their child cry, there's another sound that is much more concerning, and that is the sound of silence. This was what happened in our family one spring afternoon. My youngest daughter, who was actually quite young at the time, Courtney and I were in the kitchen when we heard this loud bang, and we froze, and there was no noise at all. We walked down the hallway, we went into her bedroom, and we found her sitting in the middle of the floor, holding on to her arm, and we tried to ask her what happened, but she just sat there kind of stunned, unable to give us any explanation as to why she was sitting on the floor. Our best guess was that she had actually stepped up onto her crib, reached through the bar to grab a toy, and while she was doing this, she slipped with her arm still between the bars. And there she was, sitting on the ground, holding her arm, and it looked from what we could tell that she had broken her arm with her fall. Well, a trip to the hospital and a quick x-ray later confirmed our suspicion to be true. It was actually quite a bad fracture. She broke both bones in her arm when she fell that day. And so she was brought to a room where she was surrounded by doctors and medical staff. They brought carts over to set her bones and to apply the cast. Now, they sent us parents away, of course. No parent wants to be in the room when the doctor takes in his hands and forces back together the two broken ends of their child's arm. And yes, of course, she was out during the procedure. Now, after we went home in the car, she had her cast. She was so excited because it was like her favorite color. But after we, you know, got back in the car, I was reminded that I actually broke my arm at about the exact same age of my daughter. In fact, when I broke my arm, it was broken so badly that the doctor had to do something that seems so counterintuitive for any doctor to do. The doctor actually had to break my arm more in order to reset it. He actually had to break me in order to heal me. You know, our culture... We really love stories that focus on people's strengths, don't we? And not often do we like to focus on weaknesses, but there's actually a strength that can only be found on the other side of weakness. There's a healing that can only be experienced through brokenness. There's a victory that actually can only happen through defeat. This is actually the story that God invites every single one of us into, but it's actually a story that many of us avoid because we are afraid of defeat. We are actually afraid of laying down our old self and surrendering everything we are to Jesus. And it's actually this fear 
of defeat that keeps us from experiencing the new self that Christ offers. Well, this morning, we are going to be wrapping up our series on encountering God by examining a very unusual encounter that God has in the Bible. This encounter involves a wrestling match between Jacob and God that goes on all night. And when the dust finally settles, Jacob experiences victory. But it's not victory because he's won the wrestling match and overcome God. He experiences a victory because God has overcome him and changed Jacob's life forever. And so if you have your Bibles this morning or a Bible app, I would encourage you to get those out and turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 32. We're actually going to pick up the story in verse 22 at the very end of the chapter. And so go ahead and turn there. And while you're looking that up, just to give you some context to who Jacob is and how he fits into the larger story of the Bible. Jacob was actually one of the patriarchs who God had established and developed a relationship with that included a promise and a plan that through him, God would create a nation, a people of God called Israel. Now, God had such a personal and unique relationship with the patriarchs that as you read the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament, many times you're going to read this phrase describing God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we're going to talk about today. Now, just as the order suggests, Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, the first father of the nation of Israel. Now, if you've heard about these characters and you've heard their stories before, often when we hear their stories, we kind of like to highlight their strengths, their faith, their amazing accomplishments. But I want you to know that that is not the whole story, because there is no perfect person on the pages of Scripture except for Christ himself, and that is certainly true for the person of Jacob. So first of all, you need to know something about Jacob, that Jacob came from a dysfunctional family, and he was actually the cause of much of the dysfunction himself. Anybody got someone in their family like that? (laughs) Nobody wants to put their hand up. That's okay. So Jacob was named well at birth because Jacob literally means he who grasps the heel because that's what he was doing to his twin brother Esau when he was born. Jacob's name also means deceiver, and he lived up to this title very, very well throughout his entire life. As a matter of fact, he actually tricked his brother Esau out of both his birthright as well as his blessing, which should have gone to him as the firstborn. And so Jacob flees, taking everything that belonged to his brother, and he runs for his life, and he runs to the land of Haran, which is about 400 miles northeast of his home in Beersheba, and he ends up living with his uncle Laban. Now while there, he starts working for his uncle, he works for his uncle's farm, and he falls in love very quickly with Rachel. And uh, if you actually know the story well, Rachel was actually his cousin, And I know that seems a little bit weird for us to get our head around, but back then, this was actually before the law of Moses was given. So although it's strange for us, that was a normal thing at this time. And so Jacob, he promises to work for his uncle for seven years, and that would be payment in order to marry Rachel. Well, deception runs very well in his family because after the seven years is over, Laban actually deceives his nephew Jacob and tricks him into marrying not Rachel, but her older sister Leah. See, I told you he came from a dysfunctional family, very dysfunctional. 
And so he does end up marrying Rachel as well, but only after promising to work for another seven years for his uncle. So in total, Jacob lives in Haran for 20 years, and all the while, God continues to bless everything that Jacob touches, even though Jacob tries to achieve much blessing in his life through deception. Now, through some strange breeding practices, Jacob ensures that only his flocks grow healthy and strong while giving the weaker animals to his uncle. And over time, Jacob's flocks grow larger and stronger, and his uncle becomes very jealous of Jacob's success. And this is the moment in the story that Jacob decides it is time to leave. It is time to go back home. And he's hoping that after all of this time, 20 years, maybe his brother Esau will finally be able to forgive him. So that's just a bit of an overview of the story of Jacob to this point. There's actually a lot more that happens, especially between Rachel and Leah. But the most important thing that happens over these 20 years is that Jacob becomes the father of 12 sons who eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the larger story of what God is doing, God continues to make his promises true. He continues to fulfill his promises to his people. So Jacob, he leaves his uncle Laban. He begins the long journey back home with his two wives, his sons, his servants, and hundreds and hundreds of animals. And on his journey back home, there's this one particular night that I want to focus on this morning with you. It's a night that Jacob spends alone. See, he sends his family and his flocks ahead of him, and it's here where he has this unusual encounter with God, an encounter that changes him forever. And I want to read for you the story in Genesis 32, 22 to 30. It says this, That night Jacob got up and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the fjord of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then the man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. You know, this is a very unusual story in the Bible where we see this wrestling match between a human being and a divine being. You know, different from other encounters we've read about with God, this one almost kind of feels a little bit undignified when you read it at first glance. You know, just think back to the story of Moses with the burning bush episode. Moses encounters God, and what does he do? He removes his sandals. He covers his face. He takes a big step back to stay away at a safe place distance out of reverence for the holiness of God, but not here. Here, Jacob, when he meets with God, he gets as close as you possibly can, wrestling in the dirt, covered in sweat. This is a very different picture. You know, many Bible scholars throughout history have actually struggled to understand and get their head around this text, and in order to reconcile some of their tensions, they've actually offered several solutions. Some have tried to interpret this as simply a dream, Others have said it's an allegory describing a spiritual battle, not a literal battle. Others have suggested that maybe it was a long night of earnest prayer 
that Jacob had. But in Jewish literature, this is the audience to which this was written, in Jewish literature, it is recognized as a literal fight that is at the heart of this story, that Jacob has a very personal encounter with God, just like Abraham and Isaac before him. And it's during this encounter that God continues his promise with Jacob to make him into a blessed people, the nation of Israel. And in the fact that this was a physical encounter, a physical fight, can actually be seen in the aftermath of what happens, because Jacob leaves this fight limping as he goes, which also results in a further dietary restriction for the nation of Israel because of the blow inflicted on Jacob. And you can actually look at that in verse 32. But although the story of this wrestling match with the divine may be kind of hard for us to imagine, for those in the ancient Near East, it actually would have been a much more familiar narrative. You see, battling the gods for blessing, especially at rivers, which were considered gateways to new lands, this was actually a commonly held belief at the time. And so for Jacob, the Jabbok River here functions as a gateway to the land of promise that God had promised him 20 years before. And so for the Israelite audience, this account would have not seemed so unusual as it might for us today. But there's another question that we need to answer in the story here, and the question is, who is this individual that Jacob is wrestling with? Who is the man? Because initially, the exact identity of Jacob's sparring partner actually seems to be concealed both to Jacob, but also to us, the reader, as well, because it describes this person as an unidentified man. If you look at the story, even the setting of the story seems to conceal who this individual is with the darkness of night, a man that Jacob definitely would not have picked a fight with had he known who he was stepping into the ring with, because it's not until the morning light that Jacob realizes that this is no ordinary man, that he has been wrestling with the divine. Now, the text uses a more general term to describe exactly who the divine being is. But if you look at Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, the prophet, the prophet gives a little bit more clarity, and he comments on this event of Jacob saying this, that he struggled, talking about Jacob, with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. And so Jacob has an encounter with God, but it's an encounter that he has with God through his angelic messenger. Now, there's another thing that's important to note in the story is that at this moment in Jacob's life, he is 97 years old. 97 years old, and yes, people lived a lot longer back then, but come on, we got to be honest here. At 97 years old, he was well beyond what any one of us would consider as young. And as Jacob is wrestling, it says in verse 25 that the man could not overpower Jacob. Now, as we read the story, it'd be really easy for us to read this and think, man, Jacob, you know, 97-year-old guy, this guy must be one ripped 97-year-old man. Anybody thinking that? You know, I mean, he was a hardworking shepherd after all, and maybe that's what's going on here, but that's actually not what's happening in the text. See, the inability for this man to overcome Jacob was not in the physical arena, but instead in the spiritual arena. You see, physically, this man, who we now know as a divine being, had no problem overcoming Jacob, because if you read in verse 25, it says that he simply touched the socket of his hip so that it was wrenched. And so the man overcomes Jacob physically with ease. So it seems that the real struggle in the story is not a physical one, but rather a spiritual one. 
And this is made clear when the man threatens to leave and Jacob begins to bargain for a blessing. You know, fighting for a blessing, it kind of seems like an underlying theme in Jacob's life. And if you know the story of Jacob well, you know that he overcomes his brother and he steals his blessing. He eventually overcomes his uncle and he is blessed with family and wealth. You see, when Jacob left home, he had absolutely no possessions at all, but now he's returning back with large families, servants, and a very successful business. But this night, there beside the Jabbok River, it is just him and nothing else. All of his wealth, all of his success, all of his power is on the other side of the river, and there in that place, God confronts him as he is. And through this angel, ultimately, Jacob wrestles with God. See, Jacob is so used to overcoming all of his opponents in life, but not here. Here, the heel grabber has finally met his match, and he finds himself overcome, outmatched, outdone, beaten, broken, and alone, but he still hangs on for a blessing. I want to read verse 27 for you again. It says, The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. And so Jacob receives a blessing, and it comes in the form of a new name. Now, this is not the first time in Scripture where God has renamed someone. In fact, Jacob's grandparents were originally named Abram and Sarai, and God renames them to Abraham and Sarah. And in the ancient world, to rename someone was actually to exercise your authority over that other person. And actually, this can be done in a negative way as well. Last week, Pastor Shane walked us through Daniel chapter 3, and there, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their names were changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these were the names given to them while they were in captivity by their Babylonian oppressors to exercise their authority over them. But in the case of God here changing Jacob's name, yes, it did declare God's authority over Jacob, but also it declared his blessing over Jacob. It also declared his destiny over Jacob's life. Now, it's interesting if you see in the story that Jacob, too, tries to exercise his authority over the divine by asking him his name. But if you look carefully, he doesn't get a response. See, Jacob is getting a lesson in submitting himself to the authority of God. Now, this name change to us might seem like a minor blessing in comparison to the wealth and to the power that he has accumulated in his life, but you need to understand that this blessing is actually better than all of the rest. See, Jacob's name hung over his head for his entire life, a name that embodied his character, Jacob, the heel grabber, Jacob, the one who tripped others up, Jacob, the one who deceived his way to the top, was now given a new name, Israel. No longer would he be known as the deceiver, but instead he would be known as the one who struggled with man and with God, but he has overcome. And he has not overcome. Please do not mistake the story. He has not overcome because he's bested God in the wrestling ring, but actually quite the opposite. He's overcome because God has overcome him. See, Jacob finally in his life submitted to God's authority, God's purpose, and God's plan for his life. And that is the reason why this is the greatest 
blessing of all. You see, Jacob experiences a blessing from God that can only come on the other side of defeat. Jacob may have learned how to overcome others in his life, but here at the Jabbok River, Jacob finally comes to the end of himself, and he learns what it means to be overcome by God. See, God conquers Jacob here, and once he's completely conquered, only then is he able to receive the greatest blessing of all. Jacob is given by God a new identity, a new purpose, and a new name. And so in our last few moments together this morning, I want to highlight a couple of truths from this encounter with God, a couple of truths from Jacob's story and their implications for us today. See, like Jacob, if we are going to experience God's blessing in our lives, there are areas of our lives that we actually need to allow God to overcome so that we can receive from him. And so the very first truth I want to highlight is this, that number one, God wants to give us a new identity. God wants to give us a new identity. You see, before God overcame Jacob, his identity was actually caught up in all of his accomplishments, all the things that he had earned for himself. You see, he might have started out with nothing in his life, but after years of hard work, he had actually built for himself a very successful business. See, no longer did Jacob need a business partner with his uncle Laban. He had everything he needed to start his own business, be his own boss. Jacob had become financially independent. He didn't need to answer to anyone. In fact, Jacob now had people that answered to him. He had servants of his own. Jacob had wrestled and fought his way to the top. He had worked hard to get where he was, and Jacob was self-sufficient. Now, it might appear to us that Jacob's self-sufficiency was a strength, but in fact, it was a weakness, a weakness that kept him from learning to be dependent on God. You see, before Jacob could go back home, before Jacob could re-enter the promised land, he first had to stop and unpack some of the baggage that he had been carrying, all the things that insulated him from needing anyone else in his life, including God. I don't think it was an accident that God waited for Jacob to be alone that night at the Jabbok River before God approached him and taught him this important lesson. See, self-sufficiency is a barrier to faithful dependency on God. Self-sufficiency is a barrier to faithful dependency on God. You see, sometimes our drive to be self-sufficient people can actually spill over into our faith. And we have come to believe that everything we are and everything we have is because we have earned it for ourselves. And if we live this way and we believe this way, then when we come to the cross, we come to the cross full of everything we are, and we are unable to receive everything he is. All that has already been accomplished for us on the cross. It's, it's like the bill of our sin has been fa- uh, paid in full, but we're still looking for the tab, thinking that unless we do it, it can't be done. See, Jacob needed to be broken of his self-sufficiency so that God could be all-sufficient for him. The same is true for us. See, like Jacob, we need to learn that there is a blessing that can only come on the other side of defeat. When God conquers us and truly saves us from ourselves. You know, Paul in Galatians 2.20, he talks about the need to be conquered by God, to die to self and sin so that we can be alive in Christ. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, 
but Christ lives in me. Isn't that a beautiful truth, church? Christ lives in me. You know, often the greatest enemy that stands between us and God is the one looking at us in the mirror, ourselves. You see, like Jacob, until we come to the end of ourselves so that God can rescue us from ourselves, we will always wrestle for control of our own lives. God needs to conquer us. And conquer doesn't mean slight change. It doesn't mean renovation. It doesn't mean upgrade. But instead, it means complete renewal on every level of our lives. You know, C.S. Lewis captures the heart of this surrender with these words. He wrote this, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill a tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires that you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself, my will shall become yours. It's so beautiful. You know, God wants to conquer us so that he can give us a new self, which is himself. But before we can receive this new self from God, we actually need to bring him our old self so that it can be put to death. I mean, this is the picture of the cross. Death to self, alive in Christ. Jesus in Matthew 10, 38, he said, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. And so God wants to give us a new identity in Christ. Secondly, God wants to give us a new name. You know, when God changes a name, really what he's doing is he's changing a person's character. He's changing a person's character. You know, the story of Jacob, I kind of find it interesting that Jacob is even asked what his name is. I mean, God asks a question to which he already knows the answer to. So it's not for God's benefit that he asks the question, but I actually think it's for Jacob's benefit here. I think God wants Jacob to declare his false self as deceiver before he can experience his true self in God. See, in our lives, often the first step to Jesus conquering us is to bring him our false self. Well, what is our false self? It's a self that we've often created. It's a self that we like to show other people so that they will like us and so that they will accept us. It's a self that we often like to hide behind to keep people from seeing who we really are. See, the truth is, though, that God actually sees our false self. In fact, he sees right through it. But as long as we keep trying to live our life hidden behind what we are not, we will never experience who we were meant to be in Christ. And so what are some examples of this? Well, for some people, they hide behind the false self of confidence. But behind their smile, they hide insecurity and uncertainty. For others, they hide behind their accomplishments, believing that their worth ultimately comes from their work, and they spend their lives living for the affirmation and praise of others. For some people, the false self is a, is a life of busyness, feeling that they are important because of all the many things that they do, but below the surface, they feel empty and alone. You know, church, I think social media especially can be really bad for this, don't you find? That is so easy for us to simply post and to project the false self that simply hides our real lives, our real struggles, failures, and brokenness. 
But like with Jacob, God sees our false self, but he still pursues us because he knows our true self, who we really are. Because it is our true self that Jesus loves, that Jesus accepts, that Jesus died for on the cross. See, when Jesus accepts us and takes us, he takes all of us, both parts, the parts that are strong as well as the parts that are weak. Jesus takes our successes as well as our failures. He takes the parts of us that are, we are proud of, but he also takes the parts of us that we are ashamed of. And he takes all of those things and conforms them into the person of Jesus Christ. And so church, if you've been hiding behind your false self, God wants to declare a new name over you this morning. God wants to declare a new name over you today. But it begins with you first acknowledging the false self. It begins with you stepping into the ring with God, surrendering all that you are so that you can experience all that he is. And isn't it encouraging to know that we can step into the ring with God knowing that he's already won the victory through Jesus on the cross? Is that not encouraging? I'm encouraged. So how do we surrender to God? How do we do this? How do we surrender to God so that in him we can overcome? Well, in our story, isn't it interesting that it wasn't until the angel actually touched Jacob's hip that he finally submitted himself to God's blessing. And so my question for you, church, this morning is this. What is the place in your life that you need God to touch, to defeat, to conquer, so that you can be put in a position to receive from him? What is the thing you've been guarding, or what is the thing you've been holding back, the thing that is keeping you from experiencing all that God has for you? I'm going to invite the band back up with me here to help us close in a time of response. And just as they're coming, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, he actually invites us to do this very thing. He actually invites us to exchange our old life for a new one in Christ. And I love how the New Living Translation puts this. It says this, it says, throw off, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on a new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. And so I know as I've been sharing these things this morning, I'm sure there's some of us here that already know the area of our life that we need God to touch, to defeat to conquer so that we can experience victory in him. And so what I want to do this morning is I actually want to pray a prayer of surrender that we can go through together. So I want to encourage you, if you can, to join me on your feet. Let us stand as we prepare our hearts to respond. And as I've been sharing this, if you felt the Spirit just tugging at your heart this morning, if you want to step into the ring with God to surrender all that you are, so that you can experience all that he is. And I actually want to encourage you just to take on a posture of surrender by simply holding out your hands like this. If that's where you're at, if you're like, I know the area, I know the place. God, I need you to touch that. I need you to defeat that in me. I need you to conquer that because this is the thing that keeps me from encountering you every day. I want to give it to you. Just hold your hands out in a posture of surrender in a posture saying, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to hold on anymore. But I actually want to let go 
And Jesus, I want you to conquer what needs to be conquered in me today. And if this is your desire this morning, that if you hold your hands out, I'm going to pray this prayer of surrender, and I want you to make this prayer your prayer. I actually want you to make these words your words back to God this morning as you approach him. And this prayer was written by Richard Foster, but allow these words to be your words back to God. And this is the prayer. Today, O Lord, I yield myself to you. May your will be my delight today. May you have perfect sway in me. May your love be the pattern of my living. I surrender to you my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions. Do with them what you will, when you will, as you will. I place into your loving care my family, my friends, my future. Care for them with a care that I can never give. I release into your hands my need to control, my craving for status, my fear of obscurity. Eradicate the evil, purify the good, and establish your kingdom on earth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Let's continue to worship together, church.